Welcome to the podcast of top executive coach, Tony Mayo. This podcast is a recording of one of Tony's teleseminars. You can join future teleseminars at no charge by registering at tiny.cc slash mayo call. That URL is tiny.cc slash m-a-y-o-c-a-l-l. Well, the topic I had in mind for today is integrity, uh, and integrity used in a with a particular meaning, particular way. One of my favorite words. Good. Well, let's see if we can use it in a similar way that's uh, useful for all of us. Uh, I'd like to introduce this topic by uh, bringing up a story that uh, seems like an urban legend of the rock band that shows up for a concert. And when they notice that there are some brown M&Ms in the bowl of candy, they refuse to perform. Have you heard that one? Yeah. No. Um, and, and when you hear a story like that about the, uh, the performer who uh, refuses to go on stage after seeing something like that that seems so trivial, I mean, well, what thoughts do you have about those, the people that make that decision? When I first heard the story, I thought these guys are just, you know, ridiculously spoiled. And I, I was very, I was quite surprised when I heard why they actually did it. Yeah, it so turns out. They, they, let me let me get clear. They walk into a place. And yeah, they they show up for a concert. They had uh-huh. stipulated certain things that they wanted in the dressing room, and among them was a bowl of M&Ms with no brown M&Ms. And when they Got walk it. in and see that the there are M&Ms with brown ones in there that refuse to perform. And this story gets passed around and usually in the f- form that Rohit mentioned, that they're prima donnas, they're looking for excuses to go off and exercise their power. But it turns but out this... The word, but if that's the word that the people contract them, if they give the word that they will have the M&Ms, they violated the contract by not fulfilling on the promise. Right, and that's why I use this as a, an integrity story. It turns out this is, it, this is true. Uh, it's it's from Van Halen, and uh, David Lee Roth in his autobiography talks about it. And he says the reason this occurred is because they were one of the first bands to go in what they called tertiary markets. You know, not, they didn't just play the big stadiums or the other professional halls. They would go into smaller places like high school football play, uh, high school football stadiums or parks and that kind of thing. But they were a big show. They would show up with 17 or 18 semi-trailers full of equipment. And they found they had to have a lot of preparation to put this show on. That they had to have a certain amount of electrical power available. They had to have a stage that would support a certain amount of weight because of their equipment and so on. So they would write these huge contracts with all the requirements for the show to go on successfully and safely. To the point where, one of the reasons they did this is they once had the stage buckle during a performance. Pretty dangerous thing to have happen. But they were concerned that promoters would get this thick phone book of a contract and not read it. So they created a sort of canary in the coal mine by burying in the midst of this a requirement that there be a bowl of M&Ms with no brown M&Ms. That way, as soon as they walk in the dressing room before the show, they look, if there are brown M&Ms, they know the contract was not read. They have to check everything. So rather than looking for an excuse not to perform, what they're doing is trying to find a way to be reliable to actually put on the show that they intend to put on. And this gets the concept of integrity, the way I use the word, is about having things work. Now, uh, it's used often today as uh, having moral weight or ethical value, sort of a substitute for being a good person to say they have integrity. But for my purposes, I'm talking about what works, what doesn't. And having all the pieces perform as expected, that to me, that means integrity, like the, from the engineering sense of integrity, when all the parts are there and they mesh properly. Things uh, integrate well together and makes it work. So far, so good? Yeah, a lot of people could uh, mistake, mistakenly think of integrity as morality. Integrity right. 
have nothing to do with morality. And I always tell people that the mafia, the mafia operate with very high integrity because they always they do what they say they were going to do. If you owe them $10,000 and they say they're coming tonight for the money, and if you don't have it, they're going to break your knees, be ready to be in a wheelchair if you don't have the money because they will break your knees. So they make a promise and they will fulfill the promise. Now, is that, is that has ethics? No, it has no ethics. But it has integrity. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's about keeping your word. These guys, they keep the word. Don't mess with the mafia, man. <laughs> So I'm using so integrity as, as what works. The politicians promise everything, the politicians mm -hmm. promise everything, and they produce nothing. Yeah, there you go. That's why people are so frustrated with politics and why we hear about Washington being broken or the system doesn't work, because the integrity has gone out of it. Now, you may have heard about it recently here, uh, a, a housing cluster elected as president of its board, a dog. <laughs> Well, yes, apparently and the same person kept getting the job as president. He was tired of doing the job. He had a sense no one was paying attention. So he put his dog on the ballot, and the dog was elected president of the uh, of the association, and he's going to continue doing the work. But I thought, well, the dog's probably a natural politician. You know, his only skill is shaking hands and being friendly. <laughs> and not cleaning up after his own poop. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so distinguishing integrity, first of all, from these other areas is useful. So integrity is about uh, consistency, uh, having things perform the way they're expected. It's about performance and what works. Whereas morals is about what's right, what's virtuous. Of course, that's a, I'm sure the two of you recognize that it's a historical discourse. You know, that's a conversation that was going on before you arrived, before I was born. And there were a set of values of what what was right and what was wrong and you know, we were born into a pre-existing set of those and we may have seen them modify over time we may have even influenced modifying them but uh, morals are distinct from integrity ethics properly used is the standards for being included in a group so you talk about professional ethics uh, there are a set of standards that we have to agree to adhere to or you're going to be excluded from the group. doesn't necessarily, again, have moral value, but it's a, just a set of agreed rules. It's another conversation where people set up these uh, functions where they say, if you do this, you're in. If you do that, you're out. Again, not necessarily uh, in, about integrity. And then there's a the whole legal domain. And what distinguishes the legal domain is that the legal rules are enforceable by violence. So we've given government entities permission to uh, incarcerate people, uh, restrict their freedoms if they violate those laws. So we have different kinds of laws. Another thing that's interesting to note about these different sets of rules is that integrity just works. And I can give you some evidence for that later on. Morals, ethics, and legal systems are only effective with integrity. So I don't need morals, ethics, or laws for integrity to be useful, but I do need integrity for the other things to be useful. I think that makes integrity a more fundamental concept, a more fundamental practice for people to use. Any comments on that so far? I have a like, knee-jerk reaction. I'm not finding a, uh, a counterexample yet, but i got to believe at least I'm drawn to believe that it's useful to have a law that says I can't kill somebody without there being any integrity among the people over whom I impose that law. But if that and law is not enforced with integrity, you get some run into some serious problems. So you might be in the medieval era when uh, nobles could kill non-nobles with impunity, yet their murder was a crime that just wasn't, you know, enforced. How, could you, how about the 1940s in Alabama? Yeah. yeah, yeah, how about that? We don't have to go as far away as I did to get examples of that. And then people start not to respect the institutions and the rules, and things start to break down. 
And we see that going on in the Middle East now. You know, for a certain period of time, everybody agreed that Mubarak functioned as leader of the country. And as long as enough people agreed that was his role, things he said and did had the force of law. As soon as enough people said, you know, we don't, we're not going to treat him like president anymore. He wasn't. He couldn't. I mean, that was, it wasn't because of the strength of his arms or uh, his intellect that he was president. It was because enough people agreed that he would be intellect. He would be the uh, president. So then, okay, that was a, a clean take. But then what do you say about Gaddafi? There are a lot of people in agreement that he's not president. I mean, I, I, yeah, right now he's got a good number of that agree that, that or see it is in their interest to let him function as president, who are taking orders from him. But as soon as a, if a few more of those decide that they don't want to respect him as president, it's it's over. Yeah, I don't have any formula of how many or which people have to change their opinion. But, there's, but the important thing is it's, it's a matter of getting other people to act as though you have a certain status. Then you have that status. Right, but in going back to this law integrity thing, so it's, it's, it sounds like there's a certain number of people who can act with no integrity and the law will be useful and be maintained. And when the number of people acting without integrity gets large enough, then the law can't work anymore. So had there been, for example, nine black people in Alabama, they still wouldn't have any civil rights. Which nine are you referring to? Uh, I said if there had been just nine black people in Alabama. Oh, right, right. They still wouldn't have any civil rights. It required a certain number of people not being acted with integrity. Mm-hmm. Right? It required a certain number of people to be on whatever that square is called in Cairo. Right. It required a certain mass of people for whom the integrity left for the laws not to hold. So you can have this mush of laws being useful and integrity being found only in, I don't know, a plurality of places, a majority of places, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I want to give credit for the way I'm using the word integrity here. Uh, I'm drawing heavily on a paper that was written by Werner Earhart, the founder of EST, and uh, Michael Jensen, who's a professor at the Harvard Business School and uh, an economist. Uh, they, they published this article in a very interesting way. It's published on the uh, social science uh, research database, which is part of this trend of publishing academic articles free on the Internet instead of inexpensive journals. And this was actually uh, started by, by Jensen because he was a proponent of that sort of thing. But they published it iteratively. They would put up a draft and ask for comments, and then they put up another draft a few months later and ask for comments. So it's been growing over the last few years. It's a very interesting way to, to improve something. And then they've been spending a lot of time making presentations on this to bar associations and business schools and that sort of thing. Now, so their uh, definition of integrity is in two parts. Yep. Oh, I've adjusted my microphone. Is that helpful? Yeah, you are. There you are. There you are. There you okay. Are. There you are. Great. Thanks for letting me know that. So here's the definition of in integrity that they use and, and I have found useful. Part one is... Say again? Who uses that? You say they use? Yes. Uh, the, much of what I'm saying today is based on an article published by Werner Earhart and uh, Michael Jensen. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely Harvard. Harvard. Yes. Yeah, Jensen's from Harvard Business School, and Earhart is uh, best known for EST and landmark education. And that is to, to do what you say, to have integrity, have the pieces fit together between what you say and what you do. Now, that seems pretty simple and straightforward. It's uh, something that most of us want from each other. Uh, but there's a, a limitation if you stop right there. Can you see what the problem is if your whole goal is to uh, act consistently with what you say? I, I see two problems. One is I might not say very much, and the other is that I might say that I want to do uh, that I'll do something, and then the facts on the ground change, and I'm committed to doing something that I don't think I ought to be doing anymore.
Right. And why, why might you not say very much? I don't want to be committed to doing those things. Yeah, there you go. So that's the problem. I, I ran into this uh, very uh, distinctly a few years ago when I was running a company. Two of my direct reports were a Naval Reserve captain and a recently retired colonel from the U.S. Marines. I called them into my office one day, talked about how their plans, the things that they were committing themselves to, were not adequate to achieve the company's goals. And they both got very proud on me and said, hey, we are men of honor. We never make a promise we can't keep. I said, well, that's a nice thought. The problem is, I have promised the investors we're going to make money for them. And I don't know exactly how to keep that promise. There's a risk. You've got to make promises bigger than what you're absolutely guaranteed to be able to personally deliver, where you're going to end up, like Rohit said, making little tiny weenie promises. So there has to be a way to swing out, to try big ambitious things, to talk to people about something you want to achieve that's big and still be in integrity. So the second part of the definition is, as soon as you know you can't do what you said, communicate with everyone involved and take responsibility for the consequences. So I can make promises and if it's something tri it's fairly trivial like being late for an appointment, I get on the phone, I call the person, I tell them something has happened, I'm going to be late for that appointment. Does it still work for you to start 10 minutes late? If it doesn't, I will do my best to find a time that does work for you. If it has cost you something, if it has uh, damaged you in some way, I'm going to try to make up for that. Uh, I'm not going to do what is much more common, is just to pretend it's not a problem. Just to slide over it. In, in the case of this company, with the, the, the company did not work out. Investors lost all of their money. And, and it was one investor, the major investor, who was... Sicilian, and maybe that tells you everything you need to know about his personality. He's had a reputation as a hothead and being vindictive. I got in my car, drove to his office, explained to him that as far as we could tell, the company was not going to work out and we were going to lose all the money. He listened to me as I described what we tried for a few minutes, and he said, well, I can tell that you've done everything you could to make this work. I knew it was a risk when I went in. Thank you for coming out here and telling me. See, that was putting in the second part of integrity. I couldn't deliver the return on investment that I had said I would, intended to do, that I'd put in a business plan, in writing. But I was willing to go there and you know, take my licks to be honest about what was possible, what I expected, so that as soon as I knew, he could take appropriate steps with this new knowledge. And then I get to stay in integrity. And you can see that's also workable. It's all about... Uh, communicating. I was talking to uh, one client about this concept and she noticed that it's all about communicating. If I intend to make something happen, I communicate it. I say what I'm going to do. If I can't do it or if I'm going to do something different or at a different time, I communicate again. And that gives people a chance to participate, to have s some impact on the outcome. Instead of just drawing in, that's another common reaction when things aren't going the way we had expected them to. To sort of bear down and, and get private and force it through yourself. That's pretty unpleasant and in many situations isn't going to work out as well as getting other people involved by going to them and saying, hey, this may not work out. I want you to know that and I want to work with you to, to come up with the next best alternative. How's that sound? I'm just wondering, do you have any case, any examples? I mean, this, this uh, investor was obviously in, in many ways disarmed by your integrity. But I'm wondering, have you ever had the opposite happen? I'm trying, I'm trying to think of that. I mean, certainly people get angry. Uh, people have emotional reactions when you can't do what you said you had hoped to do. And I'm sure I do that on the other side as well. But if the person will stick with me and make it clear they're willing to engage in what's next, I mean, that's, that's, the next, that, you know, that's the next best thing. And one thing I encourage my clients is 
someone has said they'd have a particular piece of work done on a particular date. You go to them on that date and say, where's the work? They say, I haven't got it. What's the first thing, sort of the knee-jerk response you have when the employee says, I haven't got it done? I mean, I, it depends what my what I need it for. I mean, it would either be, when will you have it done, or why don't you have it done? Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the why, why not is the sort of knee-jerk. But, of course, once you're asking why not, then the two of you are having a conversation about the past, and how much power do you have over the past? Zero. The, your other question is much more useful. It's, when can you have it done? And then, what are you going to do differently that'll... That can have me be more reliant on what you're saying now. You know, don't just be sorry. Uh, tell me what, how you're going to change your method, your approach, who's involved, so there's greater reliability in what you say. You know, something I say to my kids is, after years and years of training, I've taught them to apologize, which is progress, but it's not the whole trip. I say, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to be successful. Tell me what you're going to do now. Let's talk about the future where we have some power. We can create some things. So it's that you know, communication about what's next that makes things work. And that's my interest in integrity. It makes things work. Now, on big things like you know, losing large amounts of investors' money <laughs> or not having a work project done, it's, it's sort of obvious, I think, that doing what you say is effective and makes things work. But small things go a long way, too. I was reading a book by uh, the Dr. Atul Gawande. He writes quite a bit on making medicine effective. He's got a book called Better. Because it occurred to him that in medicine, what you do has a very serious impact on people's lives. So getting more effective should have a very high return. So he started talking to lots of people who were effectively delivering medical care to see what made them better. His overall conclusion, by the way, he'd expected to find uh, an uneven application of technology or resources, that there was some tangible reason for this. But his conclusion was it wasn't the resources. It was the consistency of doing what you know works. In my words, it's high integrity is high level of health care. This first came home to him when he was looking at doctors in India where they had basically no resources, but yet they were having some very positive outcomes because they were doing the things they could do very reliably with a high level of integrity. Uh, there's a disease, um, well, cystic fi- can I, can I yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but this seems like an interesting exploration. He, he, he um, put into the public domain of knowledge the checklist. Yeah, that was his book after this one. Right, and so this, but the, the stuff was already going on, I think, in a Michigan hospital or something. Somebody was already doing a study about the seven things, I think it was, yep. that should be done in an emergency room. Uh, not an emergency, in an intensive care unit. And if they would just check these really basic things, you know, like draping the patient and uh, washing your hands and equally um, uh, mundane things that were, from my reading of it, were almost offensive to the doctors who had to, uh, check that they were doing such things, it turned out that they had fantastic results in, in, in um, preventing uh, infections and preventing, I, I don't remember, all sorts of stuff. It was just yep. an incredibly great result. Seven stupid things. Sometime after he wrote that article in the New Yorker, within months, there was an, an op-ed in the New York Times from the guy in Michigan who was doing this, and the whole program had been shut down right. because of um, doctors basically not wanting to play, um, finding it offensive, and yet it worked. And this just stri- so it strikes me as this is, this is a, a huge collapse of integrity. Uh, it is, and it's... And, it's, and that's part of my point that I'm, I'm building to here is it's not the big breaches of integrity that everybody, almost everyone recognizes as a problem. It's the little ones that add up to such big problems. It's not washing their hands. It's not doing those seven seemingly obvious things in the intensive care unit. 
An example he gave in better was cystic fibrosis. Uh, this is a disease where mucus builds up in the lungs and it becomes hard, very hard to breathe. It's a congenital uh, disease. There's no cure. There are some fairly effective treatments. And the treatments haven't really gotten in technologically better in years and years. Yet some clinics have much better outcomes than other. By better outcomes, I mean patients staying out of the hospital for years instead of months. Life expectancy extended by decades. So he went to the clinic with the best uh, health, the best outcomes in cystic fibrosis to watch what they did. And one thing that came home to him is he was, was there when a, a high school-aged girl with cystic fibrosis came to see her doctor. And the doctor said, have you been taking your medication? And she says, mostly. The doctor says, ah, here's what we have. Let's look at the numbers. And the girl rolls her eyes because she's been through this before. There's a blackboard in the examining room. This is part of their treatment, is going to the blackboard explaining things to them. Let's look at the numbers. A person's daily risk of getting a bad lung illness and going to the hospital is 0.5% a day. The daily risk of getting a bad lung illness with cystic fibrosis uh, plus treatment is 0.05%. So untreated, half a percent, treated, 0.5%. And that doesn't seem like a lot because basically... When you experiment, as this girl is doing, you're looking at the difference between a 99.5% chance of being healthy and a 99.95% chance of staying well. On a given day, you basically have a 100% chance of being okay. But, he paused, it is a big difference. If you add this risk up over a year, it's a difference between an 83% chance of staying out of the hospital for a year or only a 16% chance of staying out of the hospital. These little things add up, but we're so prone to let the integrity go a little bit at a time. I've got a blog post called Integrity Ebbs by Inches. I wrote it after I heard a talk by the prime, primary whistleblower at MCI Worldcom, uh, which I think uh, until Madoff had the record for the largest financial fraud in world history. She was an internal auditor, started noticing things and looking into things, and was able eventually to put together the picture. And the picture was what I had sort of suspected on these things. Most of the people involved, maybe all of them, I'm not so sure about Bernie Ebers, the chairman, were not a bunch of criminals and evil people who infiltrated WorldCom to perpetrate a fraud. They were perfectly ordinary people who got in a situation where they made the wrong choices. For instance, one quarter, their uh, revenue numbers were not meeting the growth rate that was promised. The CFO said, I've been looking at the numbers along the way. I've seen a lot of activity. I think there's something wrong with the numbers, but we've got to report to the analysts in an hour Let's just take some money out of this reserve fund, put it into revenue, so we'll hit our number for today, won't hurt the stock price, and then we'll figure out what was wrong with the numbers, put it back in the reserve fund, it'll work out. And people thought, well, it seems reasonable, no big deal, just move the numbers for one day, and then of course, the next month it's off again, they take a little more out, next month it's off again, a little more out, then they start doing other things. Where it gets to the point where it's a multi-billion dollar fraud with lots of people who have done something wrong. See, it was a small thing, but now they know it was wrong. So they do a bigger wrong thing. As she was collecting evidence, she finally went to a controller and laid out her evidence and said, how can you explain this? And he told her everything. He said he had made a promise to himself once he went down this path that he knew he didn't have the strength to be the whistleblower. But if anyone asked him point blank what was going on, he was going to tell the truth. So he told her and went home and killed himself. Because he couldn't live with you know, who he'd become. So it's, it's these small things, taking the pill every day, saying, no, I won't do that, to minor bookkeeping entries.
that keeps people from having the whole thing not work, having thousands of people lose their investments in MCI WorldCom, having people land in hospitals. Uh, drug compliance is a huge problem. Uh, there's a significant proportion of hospital stays that are because of people not taking or incorrectly taking their medication. But it's not being addressed as an integrity issue. Uh, as to be workable, you want to set things up in such a way that people can follow through on what they know they should do. What responses do we have to, to those stories? I like. I just have trouble relating it back to uh, where you started, and um, you have to forgive. I'm not used to thinking in, in in grand, abstract terms lately, but it doesn't seem to me that this really addresses the the issue of of integrity. Um, I think the example of the checklist is more germane because, because there's, there's this thing about the integrity and the consequences isn't, isn't as connected. The, 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 the girl goes into the office, it's her life that she's putting on the line. And, and um, I put that in my calculator, by the way, that was a really impressive thing, the point nine nine five raised to 365 powers, so different than point nine 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 five. Yeah, I had to run the numbers, too. I couldn't believe it. it was, I couldn't believe it. That's really amazing. But it's true. Okay, so anyway, but my point is that, that, the, the, that she is making a choice that she may not be well informed about. Like, she probably never did that calculation or wasn't aware of that calculation or the implications. That's one thing. That's different from the doctors in Michigan knowing. They're saying, I will not be bothered with this goddamn checklist, and I don't care. They're not saying that out loud because they can't say that. They, they'll say instead, well, oh, it slows us down too much. It does this too much. It does that too much. And yet what they were doing was so successful that it was worthy of, of a book. You know, it's, it's just a different level of problem strikes me anyway. Yeah, I think the what unites them is to be reminded of the importance of setting up structures that improve the chances of integrity. Having checklists, explaining to patients what the odds really are over time, getting people out of their day-to-day expedience and opportunism to look at things over a longer time horizon where they can make better decisions. So when it, when it stops being a, when it stops being a moral issue or an ethical issue where you're a good person or a bad person and it's a workability issue, then we can approach it as well. What you know, how, what kind of education, what kind of charts, what kind of paperwork can we use to support people? They're not bad. They just need a, a better format to get it, to do the right thing. Okay. So, but again, I, this is the context, and you know, you, you've introduced this subject with uh, Earhart and Jens, Jensen. Is that his name? Jensen? Yes. Jensen's paper. So they're saying the, the girl who didn't take her drug um, and, and to speak to your one and have a structure, she should see that on the blackboard when she first agrees to take the pill. You know, like, here are the reasons you take the pill. You do that little calculation. Will you take the pill? And she says, I will take the pill. And you, you try to create that structure. The doctors in Michigan, they already have that structure. They're supposed to be helping the patients. They've taken an oath to do so. When you say supposed to be, you're getting into an ethical or a moral position. I'm uh, saying it's like your I'm, friend I'm, I'm, who... I'm sorry I used that word. I'm sorry I used that word. They took an oath that they will help patients. They have made a statement, I will help people get better. They have seen evidence that says doing this helps people get better, and then they said, I won't do it. Well, this checklist came from a doctor in Maryland who spent a lot of time on his own driving around the country giving presentations, explaining it to various doctors and institutions. And I see it similar to that example you gave of your friend who had the right solution, but the team didn't pick her way of doing it. You know, we can say there's something wrong with the doctors. They're not keeping their oaths and get moralistic about it and probably get nowhere. 
Or we can take the attitude of the doctor who invented it saying, well, I just haven't communicated it well enough. I haven't convinced enough people. I haven't found a way to build it into their routine. So they will do what works. Because once you start accusing people of being wrong, they don't listen anymore. All right, so this is why I never get anything done. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, because I, it's very easy for me to get more holistic here. I, oh, I'm yeah. indignant at these guys throughout this process. I, it's just, it just seems it's absurd on its face. And it makes me have even less, you know, uh, confidence in another institution, which is medicine. Yeah, so you get to be right, but it doesn't make you any healthier. Right, right. right. So, you just, yeah. So, okay, so now we've done the first piece of coaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was, it's, it's a key for management is to uh, approach people in a way, what, well, how can I help them do the right thing and I'm using the morally freighted language too how can I help them do the thing that gets them where we all agree we want to go and sometimes it's simple stuff uh, there's a professor at Cornell I think he's in the hospitality school uh, did some research with people who work in hotels the people who make the beds clean the hallways that sort of thing and there were measurements in place of the effectiveness of these teams apparently they, they clean in teams so they had measurements already in, in the, the effectiveness of the teams. He polled teams on how much they trusted their supervisor. Trust being, can you rely on your supervisor to do the things that he or she says she will do? There was a very strong correlation between the effectiveness of the teams and how much they trust their supervisor. When people feel like they're working for someone that they can't... Uh, trust they are not as effective so just you know for any manager anyone who's trying to get something done with other people which is everybody acting consistent with your words is going to have people give you better performance it's workable and yet so often I hear managers making excuses for keeping people in the dark or shading the truth or actively misleading people because that'll be more effective. That'll make the business run. Oh, we can't tell them that. It'll mess things up. I haven't seen a good case where that, that's, that's, that's true. You know, people are adults until they get to the office, it seems, and then we have to uh, spoon feed things to them. No, let's, let's be straight. Let's be honest. And so often I have clients come to me to talk about complex compensation plans and incentives and phantom stock and options. I say, have you asked them what they want? What will motivate them? I had a client a few years ago who had two engineers that were crucial to the business, had very high demand skills. They could get a job by the end of the day if they didn't want to work with him anymore. And he was thinking about giving them options, uh, large bonuses, and I said, have you talked to them about what matters to them? He went to lunch. They were all excited about this. The, the, the iPod had recently come out. They were hard to get. Well, he went out, did some research, tracked down a couple of iPods, gave them to these engineers. Uh, they were his for life for a few hundred dollars. Uh, because he listened to what matters to them. He got them involved in the process instead of trying to sort of manipulate and design things in isolation. Another interesting thing from uh, uh, Professor Simon's research is he found that groups that had regarded each other as being high in competence, which is all another conversation, and high in integrity were able to argue effectively, that they could vehemently disagree and still have good relationships, make decisions, and move forward. You think about it, it makes sense. Why would I bother having an active disagreement and discussion with someone that I don't trust to follow through on it anyway? So it turns out arguing is not a, uh, necessarily a sign of a poorly functioning team. It could be a sign that you've got a strong team that can withstand that kind of disagreement. Well, I want to be a coach if I didn't uh, finish up with this question, which is, you know, given these distinctions, do you see any opportunities in, in your own lives, something you might put in, stop doing, do differently out of 
this idea of integrity? Well, you know, integrity is a very interesting subject, and it's a very slippery subject. People talk about integrity like uh, people will talk about having a car. A lot of people say, I have integrity. I'm a firm believer that we do not have integrity, like we have a car, or we have a shirt, or we have a hat. I think integrity is something that you always have to be working on it. You know, I compare integrity with laundry, okay? So you've been traveling and you keep, you know, putting your dirty clothes in a basket, you know, and now it's Saturday morning and you say, God, I got I to do laundry. So you go around, take all the stuff you have, you take it downstairs, you put them in the washer, you dry it up, you fold it, you put them in the drawers, and now you say, wow, I got everything I own is clean. And that night, you're going to take your clothes off you want to take your underwear, you want to take your socks, you want to take your t-shirt, and now you have laundry. So the laundry done, it lasted you only a few hours. Well, integrity is the same. You cannot have integrity like I have a hat. I can leave my hat on top of the chair, get up tomorrow morning, the hat is there. That's not the way it's with integrity. Every single interaction I have in the world, I must ensure that has integrity. Every single interaction, every conversation, every email, every text, everything I do, I need to know that this has integrity. Well, how do you keep your, that in your awareness? How do you maintain that as a, a continual... Now, you, have to, you have to create a practice. The same way you, you learn how to meditate, and meditating can become a practice for you, something that you don't do, well, something you don't do before you go to bed at night. If you have good oral hygiene, you, you're going to floss, you're going to water pick, and you're going to brush your teeth every night and maybe several times a day. How do you get to the practice? By being present. Human beings are not present to what's going on. So you have to come to, the, to you need to stand on your feet and be present to what's going on. Because when I have to do something, when I have to do something, like you say, if I had to follow a procedure in a hospital, if I had to have follow a procedure inspecting an aircraft, if I have to inspect a pharmaceutical product that's going to go through the line, if I don't operate with integrity, somebody's going to be killed. So it, it takes, it, it has taken me 20 years to get what I am, but I cannot tell you I have integrity like I have a hat or I have a pair of shoes or I have a laptop. I have to work on my laptop every morning. I get up, turn it on, the thing goes on. Right. Integrity is more like your breath. You you don't have breath. You just have to keep breathing, and when you stop, it's it's a problem. But you know, we are unaware of breathing. Most people do not breathe. We are not aware, and we are lousy breathers. You know, you, you, get into, you get into meditating, you get into yoga, you want to learn really how to breathe. You don't have to breathe, breathe 20 times a minute. You can breathe six times a minute and be more healthy, but you have to put effort to do that. So it takes a lot of effort. And I would not dare, I would not dare ever to say, Tony, you have no integrity, man. Because you never have integrity. Now, I can say to you, Tony, this transaction that we're doing here, this deal you want to cut with me, appears, appears to me that doesn't have integrity. Can you see the difference? This deal that we're going to do, this contract we're going to sign, it appears to me that has no integrity. So it's the contract that's lacking integrity. Now, if you wrote the contract, well, you bring in forward your lack of integrity the way you write contracts. Maybe there are only one way. So 100% for you and zero for me. Rohit, any uh, actions or uh, practices you see putting in out of the conversation? Well, one practice to do is to be present to everything I do. 
I keep, I, listen, many years ago, I learned to keep track of every promise I make, as little as it can be. If I talk to my grandson, Marcos, and I say to him, honey, I saw these, I'm going to give you one of those, I go into my phone and I have a file for Marcus. It's called Promises to Marcus. And I write down that I promise to buy a new seat for his bicycle. If I promise to Robin, my partner, you know, I want to do something for her. Hey, you know, I need to, now I don't need to write down. I need to take the garbage every Thursday morning. It's a practice for me. We moved in this house two and a half years. So now I don't have to write it down. But at the beginning, I needed to put a little sticker somewhere. Take the garbage out before you go to work. Right. I have to create that practice. When the, when the practice got created, then it has integrated for me. I have never, in two and a half years, not put the garbage before the garbage can, the garbage man got over here. Some reason. And I think that's part of the value that comes from taking out the, the moral freighting of this. You know, it, it, it takes time to build up the practice, to have the habit. Things go wrong. You have to get back on. That would be, be one practice, is to be aware of what you say, mm. what you do, what you write, and, and so forth and so on. And then sometimes, willing, willing. I ask salespeople, are you willing to lie to the customer in order to get a $50,000 sale? And you'll be surprised the numbers. They will say yes. It's in the ninety percentile. People will say yes. Well, those are the ones who are aware of it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's so uh, ingrained. I, I was I I trained salespeople, too, and I remember once I set them up on a role play, and the role play was have the, your partner ask you a question about your product or service that you hate to get. It's the place where you know you're weak. And then as they worked on this, I walked around the room and listened in. One person asked a client a question, and the client started talking about how they do that. I said, wait a minute, Monty. As far as I know, your company doesn't do that. He says, that's true, they don't. I said, why are you lying to him? He says, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I think it's because there's just this tremendous urge to please, to say what you think they want to hear. Uh, but you have to be aware of the fact that doesn't work. But they have a big incentive to make the sale. But he wasn't a role play. He wasn't even making the sale. He was just trying to please. I think in the book, Good to Great, the author talks about many, many years ago. This is about probably 40 years ago, okay, because it's way, way back in technology. Motorola had this big deal. One of the salespeople had this big deal with a country in South America. They, They have something like, you know, like a $150 million deal. Today, it's not that much money. But at that time, it was a huge amount of money. And then they go to the, they, they, they go to the executive board, okay, to approve this transaction. And the guy tells them, I said, look, this, is, this deal is $150 million. But they, they, they're requesting that we have to build them for $155 million. $150 million go for what we're, going to, for what we're going to produce, and the other $5 million that need to be given to this general. The chairman of the board of Motorola said, you know something? We are not doing this deal, and we will never work with this country until that general no longer has anything to do with the government of the country. And said no to a $150 million deal. Now, imagine if you were the salesman. How do you feel about it? But this is what I'm saying. Today in business is not about integrity. It's about the money. It's about the money. That's where we're in the hole that we are. Don't tell me somebody didn't know about Madoff. Well, Madoff said the other day in an interview. Somebody in the New York Times interviewed him the other day and was on the news. And the guy said, listen, all the banks knew. you got to be a stupid not to know what I was doing. But nobody ever wrinkled the nose. Why? Because everybody was making money out of my deals. You see, the people that were on this scheme, they knew because you cannot get paid what you are getting paid for money. They took the money. They took the money. But one day I ran out of money. Right. Well, thank you for that, Julio. Rohit, anything you want to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I just um, I think it's 
for me anyway, the person or the relationship in which I have the least integrity is probably with myself in these terms. Ah, uh, yeah. And the the um, and I love the distinction, and I'm, that's where I'm going to try to keep this and the moral loading and trading of things is first of all if I'm angry at something it's a great trigger that I'm not doing anything useful and secondly and more concretely for me is just you know like for example today I could have I had the time to and I just didn't write a piece that I wanted to write um, you know a little description of a strategy I do and um, and then it leaves me feeling like shit and uh, uh, you know, and just and just treat these deals that I make with myself about you know treat my own checklist like a deal that's an integrity. Right. That's yeah, a big thing. And one thing people often ask me about organizing themselves and their to-do lists and getting things done. One of the most important things we can do is to look at the list and say there are certain things we are not going to do. You know, we want to do it. We told ourselves we were going to do it. You know what? I'm not going to do it. And just getting back into integrity by reneging and accepting the consequences of that frees up a huge amount of energy that you can apply to the things you are going to do. Right. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff lying out there that I'm never going to do that still sits in my inbox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a natural thing to fall into, just like that sales guy in the role play. Well, you want to say yes. You'd like to think that's going to happen. But, hey, it, it, it takes a toll. It, it, it erodes workability. Yeah, it's, it's not a moral thing. Everybody does it. Uh, you know, it's permissible. It's just not effective. So if you look at it in terms of effectiveness and workability, it's, I think it's easier to, to make those choices and set up new practices. Well, I enjoyed having the two of you with me. I hope I'll hear you at uh, future teleseminars and yeah, tell people you know to join us. We can have a conversation on other uh, pertinent topics. Cool. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. It was very nice meeting you, Julio. Yeah, thank you very much, Tony. I appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. More information is available at TonyMayo.com. We appreciate your comments, suggestions for future topics, and, most of all, stories of how you applied the coaching. Our email address is podcast at mayogenuine.com. This podcast is the property of top executive coach Tony Mayo, copyright 2011.